at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Uh, happy 2016, everyone, or something 2016. I don't know if happy is the right word. Yeah, if you're a Syracuse fan, 2016, probably not happy. Then again, 2015 really wasn't too great either. Um, this is pretty much the sequel to 2015, uh, The Reckoning, <laughs> or, or name your, your goofy sequel title, um, we are not looking good on the basketball court, and uh, and that's troubling, Dan. Um, what was your most troubling thought after losing to Clemson the other night? Um, it's it's weird because I tweeted it out after the game, and it's almost like I almost wish that this team would just go and lose like a normal team. And I know that's asking a lot for you know a Syracuse fan, but every single time we've lost, which is now six times in you know the first week of January, which is terrifying. Um, it, they, the team has really ripped the hearts out of the fans, and it's been in every game. And, and you can see this, you know, little pieces here and there. And we have great performances from like one player, but then everyone else doesn't show up. So you, we know that this team is talented enough to compete, at least with the teams that we face so far. Obviously, we haven't seen Duke or UNC or Virginia or anything, but it's just so frustrating to watch game in and game out them go into like the final timeout with you know the game either with a slight slight lead or you know closing a, a deficit and then they just fall apart and something stupid happens so it's just been very frustrating to watch this team lose and it, it's very much you know it feels a lot like uh you know when you hear about a team that doesn't know how to win i know last year they didn't win a ton but they you know made some games interesting and had a couple down the stretch um it's just very emblematic of that, which is some of the Syracuse fans up until last year, you know, we didn't have for a while. So I know it's, it's new for me. I'm sure there are people from like the mid nineties who will, you know, yell at me for being a, a recent Syracuse to elitist, but it's been very tough to watch. Yeah. And you know what? I think it's been tough to watch for me too. And I, and I was someone who did sit through 06, 07 and 07, 08, um, sat through some of the nineties teams when I was younger. Um, this is just, you're right. I, I, th- I think it's, it's a, it's an inability to, to conceptualize wins, um, which is weird because I felt like they did a very good job of it against Texas A&M. I wouldn't consider the UConn game in there, I think. Um, I think the UConn win was a happy accident, admittedly, especially the way they played for most of the second half. Um, I think the A&M win was a complete victory, and, and no matter what happens this year, I think we'll look back at that as the high watermark um, for at least for now, um, anyway, uh, for the regular season. But I think this is a team that, that there's an impending doom and collapse that, that I feel like permeates the fan base um, and it permeates the team. Uh, and it, I think you started to see glimpses of it against Wisconsin, and it's just kind of continued on through this really, really rough stretch um, under Mike Hopkins. I, I think in general, you know, it's, it's not – you can't just point to one thing. It can't just be the lack of uh, scoring in the paint or free-throw shooting – or you can't blame Hopkins, uh, you can't blame the lack of depth solely. I, I think it's a combination of factors, and um, it's also amazing to me, and we can talk about this later if you want, um, just how quickly the fan base is checked out, um, both in person um, and online, it seems. Oh, I, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it comes from kind of uh, what's going on in the football program. Like, obviously... You know, lacrosse is always pretty good, but that's still a very niche sport, even in Syracuse. So when you have two straight seasons of of just bad play, at least, you know, obviously we're coming from very different levels as Syracuse football fans and Syracuse basketball fans. Um, it's almost like people are just checking out of, like, the athletic department, which is unfortunate just so much good has happened in the last year. But uh, it would be nice to kind of string some, some victories together in the two major sports, and, and it's been tough to come by. Yeah, the two straight years things is a good point. I mean, uh, my sophomore year, 07-08, uh, that was the year that Devendorf was out for almost the entire season, uh, the year that Johnny Flynn was playing 39 minutes a night, Routens was out for the whole season. Um, and yeah, I, I think everyone was pretty checked out. I think I, uh, 
I think at least one, I think the NIT game, I might have refused to go just out of protest because as a fan, I was just so disgusted with what I was seeing. But what I was seeing, while it was uninspired in defense, it at least had a lot going on in the offensive end, and that team fought and fought hard more often than not. Well, both of those teams did. Um, the 06, 07, and 07, 08 squad. I think this team is fighting, and they're playing in close games. But um, the impending doom factor is, is just is, is a new thing for, for me. I think it's a new thing for you and a lot of other fans, too. Um, I mean, Dan, what do you think it is more than, more than anything else? I mean, like I said, it's not one thing solely, but do you think that one thing is, is more prevalent um, and in the players' minds uh, as these games go down to the wire and end up being losses? Um, I think the easiest thing, to, I mean, the easiest thing to point to is probably free throws because that's always an issue. Um, and that's certainly something. Um, I think probably the most prevalent thing is just the greater depth issues because those lead to so many other things. That'll lead to, you know, midway through the game, we stopped any, any rebounds. Obviously, this isn't a good rebound team to begin with, but like they'll hold their own for a minute and then the depth issues kick in and you, you stop seeing the hustle plays, you stop seeing uh, the rebounding, you stop seeing some of the steals. Um, the legs come, you know, fall out from under the shooters. So I just think uh, this team was, we didn't, we knew it wasn't very deep to begin with. Um, Caleb Joseph totally no showing this year is a bit of a surprise. Obviously last year was up and down, but we take last year, Caleb Joseph right now for sure. Um, Daywan, you know, has some nice performances and then has some games where he just isn't a factor. Uh, Chino is Chino. Franklin Howard's been sick, and he, you know, he, he showed some things, but he's still like, not quite there. So we're playing with you know, five guys who we can reliably put on the floor and get probably 30 minutes out of, but the, you know, one of our starters and then basically our whole bench outside of Tyler Lydon, who is more or less a starter. Um, you just don't know what you're going to get in a stiff night, and most often, more often than not, it's, it's not going to be a huge impact. So it's really the depth thing I think is the biggest thing. And then I think you can kind of take the rest of the factors from there. So do you think that it's a, it's a mental issue? Or do you think it's a physical exhaustion issue? Cause I know, I mean, obviously it's a young team, but I feel like, again, you know, we've been in this situation before we've had teams that have had really short benches and, and no, they haven't been incredibly successful, but they've managed. And I think, you know, I'm pointing directly to um, the two, you know, Johnny Flynn teams in particular, um, that team ran a hell of a lot more than this one does, played with greater pace. Um, by, I think, year two with Flynn, I think the team found ways to play better on the defensive end of the floor, and it just seems like, I mean, again, this is me pulling from teams that I've, I've watched and watched very closely, is that I'm, I'm not seeing how that team, playing basically five, maybe six guys, was able to run and, and, and be much more competitive um, with better teams um, at, at the end of games and, and, and play very watchable basketball. While this one, I feel like, plays a much slower pace and simply just can't get it done past maybe the 10-minute mark in the second half. Uh, well, with that, with the 2008-2009 team, which was my freshman year, I mean, that team, it wasn't, I mean, none of these Bayheim teams are all that deep. He rarely goes past seven or eight. Um, but that team had a little more flexibility in terms of, of the positions because you had Routens who could fill in at the two. He played a little bit of the three. You had Paul who could play anywhere from like the two to the four. Uh, you had Anjanat who gave, you know, outside of like a midseason swoon, gave really good minutes at the four. Um, you had two guys who could play the center. So while you only had, you know, your seven or eight, you had seven or eight that could give you minutes in different spots. And you, you saw the same thing with the 2010 team. Um, so all these teams had these kind of uh, these different lineups that they can throw at you with different looks and you could, you know, ride the hot hand. This team, I mean, you have the five guys and maybe day one will give you a good 20 minutes once every three games. And it's just so limited. And I know, um, and and from what we've read from, from Michael Burke, who does an amazing job um, with his lineup pieces and his stat pieces, you know, those five, there's that one lineup, the Leiden, uh, the Leiden center small ball lineup is by far the best one. And, you know, as much as I'd like to see that lineup play 35 minutes a game, you just like, can't do that, and we're just not getting anything else from the three, four guys that aren't in that lineup. So it's, I just think it's, it's both um, shallow depth and limited depth in terms of uh, the range of looks that we can give. I think that's a smart perspective. I think overall, you know, I think going to the season, the like you, me, and everyone else really said, okay, like, 
things are obviously going to hinge on Benajay, and he's going to be the leader of this team. But you know, somebody else has to step up, and and I think it was one of the questions in the kind of season preview roundtable was, you know, who is who is the second banana to Benajay, and I think uh, we were kind of split between maybe Richardson um, or or Cooney, and it ends up it's neither. Um, Dan, did that ever cross your mind? I guess going to the season that that a senior year Trevor Cooney would be a no show um, in, in in a lot of key spots, and and while he hasn't played poorly necessarily, he's definitely taken a step back um, from last year, which we also considered a step back. Uh, do you think that Richardson uh, his consistency is off? I mean, did you ever visualize a team that is pretty much last year's team, except it hinges on a guard slash forward instead of? Uh, a rocky and Christmas like last year. Um, I'd hesitate to like totally concede that Cooney's taken a step back, but it, mostly because up until this uh, this last game, he had a nice little stretch. So I think he's just. I, I think we can all effectively say he's never going to be the consistent player on offense, which is is what it is. Um, uh, that's not necessarily shocking. You know, you would think he would take a, at least a sizable step forward, even if he doesn't become a superstar. And I think that's fair. Um, I think it's more, you know, Richardson, obviously he's having a couple flashes, but he had some no-show games. Uh, Leiden's had some really quiet games. I, I think it's more surprising. Like you said, we don't, we haven't found that second guy, whether it's Coleman, who obviously has his own issues, which, you know, are largely forgivable, but they're way more uh, enhanced on this team. Um, I think my choice when we had that question was Tyler Roberson based on, you know, Roberson's weird because, his best games don't really coincide with like, you know, he doesn't light up bad teams. He just shows up here and there and you don't really know when he's going to emerge. His best games last year were against Duke. Um, but he like, there are nights and Hopkins said it last night, he was great yesterday, but there are games where he's just totally unengaged, disengaged from the game. And you're not, you're going to get what five points and six rebounds from, which is just not enough. But we really haven't found like that number two guy. Yeah, occasionally Cooney will have a nice game. Occasionally, you know, Malachi's had probably the best player on the team for two games, but no one's really stepped into that role, which is an issue. You don't know who the Joe two guy is. You don't know outside of Benajay, you know, having the ball in his hands at the end of the game. Like you don't know where plan B is because it, it whips around so wildly. And there are moments within games where you, no one's playing well. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that definitely is an issue and, and it's unfortunate because for the second year in a row, we might end up wasting, what is a really awesome senior year from a from a fun player that we all really like? Yeah, you bring up an interesting point there, um, and I, I completely agree with you. I think it'd be a bummer to see both Benajay and uh, Christmas go out without tournament bids. Um, a couple of years ago, even during the Final Four season, I think one of the biggest criticisms levied at Syracuse was you don't know who's going to take the final shot, and now we know who should be taking the final shot. Um, I think it's Benajay, but then after that, there, there's a kind of you know just a bunch of shrug faces. Um, obviously Syracuse has always kind of shifted its personality, especially I think in recent years, it's really kind of adjusted uh, year to year how it plays basketball, um, at least on the offensive end. Uh, do you think it's strange? Do you think it's uh, kind of a, just a sign of the times that, that you know, SU is, is now, I'd say in year maybe four or five of, of struggling to, to, to pick like that guy, that shooter? Um, who, who you know 100% of the time is going to be taking that clutch shot? Uh, yeah, and we talked about it a little bit today um, on the back end. Well, actually, it's been kind of a running dialogue, I think, in the Syracuse uh, world here. Um, Syracuse has had a really weird string of roster turnover, um, you know, outside of, like, the transfers from last year, which, in retrospect, maybe wasn't the greatest thing, but... You know, neither Patterson or, or Johnson were really going to be that guy this year in all likelihood. But, um, you know, you have Tyler Ennis, who you're expecting to be on the team for two or three years. Beheim admitted that, and he's gone after a year, and he was definitely the guy. Um, and then you have Chris Matola, who we were probably more excited about than anyone since Tarmalo as, a, as an incoming freshman. He has, what, like 11 games, and he's gone. So uh, this, team, this, this team hasn't, like, had a chance to naturally build on itself, and it doesn't um, it doesn't have that like instant refresher that like a Kentucky or a Duke does. Like no one does. Those are the two teams that recruit um, at that level, and there's no one else that really content that that really compares. There's you know a definite tier break. So um, when you're Syracuse and you're like on a second or third tier recruiting, you know you get your five stars and you get these big players, but um, 
when they're not allowed to naturally develop into their roles, at least they haven't been for a couple of years. I think we saw that more in 08, 09 to like the, uh, the Fab Mello, uh, you know, Deion Waiters team, those guys kind of shifted up and moved into their spots. And you saw that like Chris Joseph go from like the guy who would get, you know, into games half the time and blowouts. And then he became, you know, the dynamic sits man on the team after that. And then he became the star for two years. You'd same thing with like CJ fair. Um, now we don't have that because things have been accelerated and, and we've had just a weird mo- movement in the roster. So I, I don't think we've had that, that progression on this team in a couple of years. You know, it's a good point. It's one yeah, you and I were bringing up on Twitter after the game and, and we brought up in the back end Slack too. Is it, 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 this isn't a recruiting issue, and a lot of people are pointing to recruiting, and it's just it, that's not the problem. And the problem is is talent development. It's not talent. Um, you know, all that, that really nice run we had from '09 through you know 2014 to, uh, w- was all based on you know based largely on on talent development and players sticking around for a few years. And you don't you don't always need a guy to stick around. Sometimes you can have a standout freshman like an NS who can step in with a bunch of veterans. Um, and, and have a quality team that looks really good and, and can be very poised. Right now, we just have so much roster turnover, and, and again, it's it's going to come off as as striking out and recruiting, and it, and it just isn't. It's it's bringing in a lot of talent, um, but but a lot of talent in in, in waves and, and sporadic. We've had a lot of big injuries. We've had guys leave early when we didn't expect it. It's not that they shouldn't have. It's that we just didn't expect them to. Um, you know, th- th- this is a, a, a. It just so happens that that kind of shift in how things have gone, recruiting wise, or at least not recruiting wise, talent development wise, um, you know, coincided with NCAA sanctions that that also you know have you know two scholarship reductions a year. So there's, I think this just happened to be a perfect storm of just like shitty timing, and and that just sucked for us because now, you know, on top of all that. You know, Beheim is in year one of, of a possible final three seasons, and, and that adds another wrench to, and it's not to throw Hopkins under the bus, but it's another wrench uh, to, to a suddenly, like, very tumultuous time uh, for the program. Right, and I do think there's a chance this time of fixes itself. Maybe it's just a, a quick period here, but, you know, next year we have a two-person class coming in of Matthew Moyer and Tyus Battle. Um I don't think we expect to lose any of the, the young guys in this team. Um, obviously, Benajay's graduating, Cooney's graduating. Um, but I, I don't think, I mean, some people are saying, like, you know, obviously there was buzz on Leiden after Atlantis, but I think we would all right now expect Tyler Leiden and Malachi Richardson to be back next year. And if that happens, then I think maybe it kind of corrects itself because Moyer steps in, he should be able to be a role player right away, and then by, battle we kind of expect to be one and done-ish. Um, so it's not really a shock. So then you start to have like the depth um, and the the guys who should be able to be number one, number two guys kind of flowing together. Um, and then hopefully this kind of dovetails into a nice end of Bayheim's career. Um, but, you know, it could also totally not work out, as we've seen. Um, but, I, you know, you start to raise the issue of, of Hopkins. Um, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it goes here. I almost, you know, for, for a, a minute there, right before the, uh, the Wisconsin name, really, you could have almost, when the team was rolling, um, you could have almost seen like, oh, Hopkins steps in, you know, goes eight, does uh, seven and two, eight and one, and Bayheim just says, all right, we're good, and retires at the end of this year. Now, it's you know, we really don't know what we have. Um, I think some people are being a little bit reactionary with these nine games, uh, and Honestly, if they had gone nine and zero, I probably would have said the same thing. We really don't know because it's Hopkins coaching Bayheim's team, not Hopkins coaches Hop, coaching Hopkins team, which is what Bayheim said starting this whole thing. But um, it, it's uh, I don't know. I feel like we're just not used to losing at this level, and it's really kind of setting this fan base into a weird cycle of of worry and and just a whole a bunch of stuff that we've seen come out on Twitter and in the comment sections and everything. So. Hopefully, uh, Beheim writes the ship, but um, it'll be an interesting reaction when, it, when or if he does. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's great that you've brought that up. Cause it's kind of what I wanted to touch on a little bit earlier, but I was just like thinking through how to, like, when to weave it in. And that is not to take anything away from Hopkins, but what do you think Jim Beheim adds um, in his return? Like, what, and again, this isn't, this isn't to throw Hopkins under the bus about what he did or didn't do. 
But it's to say, what does Jim Beheim inherently do and is, is just so, so you know, well-versed in um, and experienced in that, that he can add to this team right off the bat um, and potentially um, help at least set them up better for, for an upset this Saturday against North Carolina? Um, just a feel for the game. Um, I, and I don't know that they're, like, outside of the whole debacle with the time of the foul uh, at the end of this, this Clemson game, um, I don't think they're, like super obvious moments uh, of like, oh, Hopkins should have done this instead of this. Like, people who think that they know exactly what substitution should happen at what time are kind of lying to themselves. Like, he, he probably has a decent idea, but um, I don't think you can kind of master anything until you've done it. And obviously, we've had Beheim here for so long. Um, I, I think he almost made it look too easy, but when he started, it was in a different time, and he was allowed to kind of grow with the game um, without so much scrutiny and whatnot. So, um I just think the fact that Bayheim has been around for, for almost 40 years, like there's a reason why he's won as many games as he has. And, and I think he definitely has a natural feel for how the flow of the game goes. And even when uh, people have, you know, gotten mad about the stall ball and stuff, like there's a reason why, you know, the things that he believes in works and, and why he sticks with them. So uh, I'm not sure if it'll be anything that's like super obvious to us watching the game or something to be like, oh, Hopkins wasn't doing this, um, and now Bayheim is and we're winning again. I just think he probably has a little bit better feel for the team in that role where, you know, Hopkins is around the team a lot, but he's not the one calling the shots on, on game day. He's, you know, running practice and observing. Um, so hopefully, you know, this will kind of shake the rust off for Hopkins when he does um, you know, he's not going to be totally fresh when he does take over. And I don't think anything will change with the succession plan based on nine games. But um, I do think the team will probably be a little – I think it will look better under Bayham. It just makes sense that it would. Yeah, no, I, I'm completely on board with that. And, you know, you brought up some good stuff there uh, as far as, you know, we're, we're a spoiled fan base and, and we're not the only one, but we are a spoiled fan base because, you know, this isn't an easy job. It isn't easy to do what, what Bayheim's done. And, a lot of the media might throw some shade on on how it's been done, or, or you know the way in which, in general, like th- th- there are a lot of different criticisms levied at at, at Bayheim and, and Syracuse, and you know what, some of them may be warranted. Most of them, though, aren't because they're most of them are made to you know diminish the accomplishments of, of, of a forty year career that's largely based in you know a ton of success. I mean, no, we haven't won at the same rate, especially championships wise, of a you know, Mike Krzyzewski or, or uh, you know, Roy Williams maybe, but we, uh, we've, we've won at a rate that doesn't make any sense um, to 99.9% of other fan bases, um, and that shouldn't just be glossed over. Um, and, you know, Sean and I talked about this on a random, like, one-off podcast, I think, like, two years ago, and we're saying, like, the day, like, when we finally become just like everybody else, where we have a coach who is there for his contract and then we see what happens next uh that that's going to be you know it's going to be a very very weird time for Syracuse fans and there's going to be a lot of meltdowns and I think we started to see we had a unique opportunity to see a glimpse of it um for these last nine games and I really didn't like what I saw from the fan base overall um just because it was exactly what Sean and I were looking at and I know you've said it and others too like the, the fan base psyche just went off a cliff in in, in a month and, and it was because we had this we had this idea that everything just continues as it was and that you know and that this is what college basketball fandom is all about and like you know I'm only speaking from the standpoint of a Syracuse fan and, and one who's been one for my you know most of my life um, Duke fans will go this isn't just a hate on our fans like Duke fans are going to go through the, probably the same thing um, at this point uh, when Coach K eventually hangs it up, like you can't, you can't just automatically assume that that Hall of Fame coach begets new Hall of Fame coach begets new Hall of Fame coach, and that everything stays the same. I don't think we live in a world anymore, at least from a college basketball fan or college sports fan standpoint, where you're just going to have the same coach for 40 years. I mean, Sean said it. We've all said it before. Like this is not what we what we know to this point is not normal. It was barely normal when when he, you know, was doing it and still is doing it, and it's not going to be normal when he's done. Um, and, and I think that that's something that the fan base, you know, has to has to keep in mind a lot um, over the next few years. And then as Hopkins takes over, that you know, you can give him 
you can give him a lot of rope to play with, but also, you know, it, it goes both ways. Give him a lot of rope and don't just throw him under the bus because he's not Beheim, but also don't give him so much rope that no matter what he does, he, he's, he's a god. Because I, I, don't that that's, I don't think that that's the proper way to view it either. That's right. And I think um, it's funny because there's, we all know there's like that section of Syracuse fans who no matter what happens with Beheim, like he can't ever do anything right. And a, a section, I mean like, a handful of people that are allowed on Twitter on message boards and whatnot. It's not anywhere near like even a plurality. Um, but there's like those people who just, for whatever reason, just hate Jim Beheim. And for like the 99% of us, we've seen Beheim wildly successful with a national championship and a bunch of uh, conference titles and, and final fours and everything else where it, it's almost like uh, with Hopkins, he has this nine game stretch where he goes four and five, which you know, a fairly rare thing for Syracuse basketball, but this team also doesn't appear to be all that good. And it's almost like everyone else who is great with Beheim and loves him, like, we're so unused to, you know, mediocrity for even a couple of weeks that we all turned into, like, the anti-Beheim people. But with Hopkins, who, you know, again, is not coaching his own team. He didn't have, you know, months to prepare, and he didn't have his own, you know, recruiting uh, strategies and and. You know, I, I think Hopkins even said when he takes over, it's not going to be an exclusively zone team. Like this is not going to be what the team looks like under Hopkins stylistically. Maybe he's this bad, maybe he's incredible, but we really don't know based on this stretch. So um, hopefully we all take a step back. Hopefully Beheim, I'm sure he will, will say some things that will crawl our nerves. And, you know, I, I think at this point uh, it'll probably be good if Beheim sits around for at least another year after this. Um, obviously there's like the three-year timetable, but I think we all kind of know that Beheim's going to, um, he'll probably be gone in those three years, but I don't know that we know exactly when it'll happen. So, um, I, I think we all just, I think it's a good thing that we're getting Beheim back, not because Hopkins was like dooming the team, but because at least if Beheim fails, then everyone's going to be like, all right, this team just sucks. Not necessarily like, oh, Hopkins is dragging everyone down. Yeah. And you know, I said it's, it's not for you and I or anyone else in the site to play, you know, perspective and to set the perspective for, for the fan base. I don't think that's what we're doing here at all. I think, you know, and, and I've tried to explain this to people before. Me talking out loud on Twitter or on this podcast or on articles, a lot of it is trying to convince myself, too. Um, and if things are tough, it's, it, it's to me, writing's therapeutic. Um, talking about the team is therapeutic because I feel like I need to, if there's things that are, I'm saying ultra-negative, and you know what, a lot of fans probably feel the same way. You have to vent these ultra-negative feelings but then you need to be able to move past them. You can't just, you know, live and breathe them. And it's going to be a challenge not for the fan base at large, and I think that includes us. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want it to come off as, you know, we're kind of levying judgment on a fan base at all. I think we're very much part of that fan base and very much subject to the exact same feelings, um, even if we get a little bit more time to, to hone them and, and, and shape them behind the scenes. Oh, I mean, I've gone on more, like, extended Twitter rants after games with this team than I have, like, ever ever before. So I'm definitely not above um, getting all, you know, annoying and preachy on Twitter after games. So certainly not that. <laughs> and on that note, uh, I think we're going to hit some halftime. Uh, Dan, what have you been drinking these last two weeks since it's been a while since we've spoken? Um, actually had some pretty interesting stuff uh, yesterday. Um went for a couple of drinks. I, I didn't have a full one, but I had a chance to taste uh, Evil Twins Christmas Eve at a New York City hotel room, which is... I've come to realize that, that uh, Evil Twin is really like the LCD sound system of beer uh, breweries. <laughs> like, just really kind of weird stuff going on. A lot of it's really brilliant. Some of it, you know, not so much. Um, and also, all the titles are ridiculous. Um, this was interesting. Very much a winter drink. Um, a lot of flavors going on. Uh Something, I don't know, I feel like it's one of those things that I, I don't know that I'd love to have a full, like, 16 ounces of it, but I had, you know, a couple ounce taste, and that was nice. Um, I had uh, Chances, which I, you know, one of my favorite beers that I don't get to find a lot, Boulevard's Tank 7 Farmhouse, which is wonderful, one of my favorite Saisons, um, popped up at a brewery that's, or not brewery, a bar that's a couple blocks away from my place, which is nice. Um, one of my other favorite Saisons, Worker's Town from Two Roads, uh, which is a super drinkable um, kind of a lot of pale ale qualities, but you know some of those more di- dynamic saison flavors, which is nice. Um, had that. Uh, I don't remember if we had a podcast since I tried uh, Ballast Points Victory at Sea Porter, 
uh, which is really good. Um, and I'm not a big Porter fan, but uh, really enjoyed that uh, because Ballast Point's awesome. Um, I'd say the most in- I had oh one not great one uh, Bronze Rye Pale Ale. Don't think I'd recommend that one. Um, just like super overhopped and and I don't know. I, I really couldn't get into it. Um, I tried uh, this one's from Belgium. Uh, Duden Terrorless Noel, which is a Christmas beer from Belgium. It's a it's a dark ale, ten and a half percent. Kind of like the almost like the Evil Twin, a little heavier. Um, but you have all those like the nutmeg, the uh, little hint of like mint, like all those Christmassy flavors. Um, I think the Evil Twin was better. Uh, the most interesting thing that I had was yesterday um, from a brewery I did not know existed, and it's in I think Chester, New York, which is up by like Monroe. Uh, kind of like a, an hour north of the city, um, Running Duck Brewery. Uh, it's they did a beer that was supposed to kind of taste like a Samoa Girl Stout cookie. Hmm. Um, it's a brown ale. Uh, I'm gonna say they did a very good job. Um, it's kind of like very not subtle, but not like overpowering coconut and cocoa flavors that mix pretty well. Um, but it's also like really light on the palate, um, which you kind of be afraid this wouldn't be. Um, so I really enjoyed that, like way more drinkable than a Samoa flavored turkey should, or Samoa flavored beer should be. But, uh, if you can find that anywhere and I have no idea what their distribution's like, I had never heard of them before I saw that yesterday. Uh, quite good. So, uh, look out for that one and a couple of those other ones. Uh, the bronze rye pale ale, not so much. Interesting. Yeah. I know coconut's kind of like a, a hit or miss for people when it comes to beer. I know a bunch of people that, that love coconut and love coconut and beer. I know plenty that don't, um, you know, my favorite beer, well, Coconut Wise, is still Death by Coconut, the uh, a gem from Oscar Blues that I've talked about. I don't, they don't get to you, but maybe one day. I really like Coconut in general, so that was definitely, uh, this was more up my alley, but I don't think the Coconut was like super overpowering or super obnoxious. So like if you, if you're not a huge, if you're, you know, neutral on Coconut, I don't think that would rule this out. If you like Samoa cookies, I'd say definitely go for this. Um, and I'll look for, I'm going to try to see what the, uh, distribution looks like if I can find it yeah. because I had never heard of them before at all. So, and their website looks like it was made in Microsoft word, <laughs> which is kind of a, I don't know. I kind of like it. That's hip. I'm a fan. All right. Uh, things that I've been drinking, um, Hmm. Had a lot of hop tonic as per usual. It's one of my uh, favorites from over at Smog City in Torrance. Uh, found actually a good Italian restaurant over here for once. Uh, Italian food, as one might expect in California, is not super easy to find, at least if it's good. Um, so I had a bunch of Italian beer. I had uh, Beer Moretti uh, La Rosa, just their uh, Amber Ale. I thought it was pretty good. Not a huge like uh, Moretti fan, but you know what? It was, a, it was a good beer. It was good with my pasta, so no complaints here. Um, had a punch bowl IPA from Abigail, um, kind of, uh, stayed true to its word. Definitely was, uh, extremely juicy, tropical, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, Abigail's, uh, restaurant and brewery over in Hermosa Beach. And they put out a couple good, uh, house ales as well as, uh, just some other stuff they have on tap. Um, I had the, uh, NXS, uh, IPA, the, uh, Stone Sierra Nevada um, collaboration. I thought it was good. Um, I wasn't overly thrilled with it, um, which was disappointing because I do love both breweries, and I just felt like I was kind of expecting a little bit more. That might have been on me. Um, had uh, Sierra Nevada's Coffee Stout, uh, which was in their uh, their winter variety pack. Really, really good beer. Um, I enjoyed that a ton. I'd highly recommend that um, for those who see it around. Uh, just before the uh, January 1st deadline, I had myself the uh, Stone Enjoy By uh, Black IPA. And uh, that one, I thought it was just going to be like another version, well, pretty much the same thing as uh, Sublimely Self-Righteous, uh, which was pulled off shelves about, I think, six to nine months ago. Ends up, it was a much different beer. It was uh, both lighter and hoppier, which I can always enjoy. Um, so yeah, really, really get a lot out of that. Um, then I had... Um, Probably one of my favorite beers in, in well, recently anyway. Um, fourth meal from the brewery. It's a it was a collaboration from the brewery and uh, main beer company. Um, fourth meal, obviously playing off of uh, you know 
main beer companies, uh, well-known IPAs, uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, this, uh, this being fourth meal instead of dessert. Uh, Is this not Taco Bell flavored? Because that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, if it was Taco Bell flavored, probably would have vomited, but... Most likely. Most likely. <laughs> also had a, another brewery collaboration, uh, Prairie Rue. It's a brewery, uh, Prairie Artisan Ales uh, collab that uh, was also, you know, easily drinkable. And that was really it. Didn't have anything, like, over the top. Just uh, just a bunch of different things. Uh, I have a bunch in the fridge, though, so I'll definitely have more to talk about in the uh, in the coming weeks. Unfortunately, now I realize that Taco Bell's going to hear this somehow, and they're going to brew a beer <laughs> that's just old. Uh, what's the the feature, like the one flavor they can only get out of Taco Bell? Um, the Mountain Dew. The Mountain Dew. <laughs> that crap. <laughs> that Mountain Dew. The, the, the Taco Bell Mountain Dew. I'm not Baja trying to be Blast. above Taco Bell. Baja Blast. I love Baja Blast. It's great. It's just going to be Baja Blast and like fermented taco shells. It's going to be gross. <laughs> yeah, it's just going to taste like liquid. It's going to be burritos. 18% alcohol. It's and it's come, going to... T- it's going to come in a Dorito shell. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Dorito shell shot glass. Christ. <laughs> it's still going to be better than Four loco. Don't get them oh. any ideas, Dan. They're... Uh... <laughs> Don't tweet this podcast at Taco Bell. They will do it. They are crazy. Oh, no. All right. So moving on from disgusting things, uh, Syracuse football. We uh... <laughs> Wait, what? What do you say? Moving on from what? At least we, at least we made, the, Baham- at least we made the, uh, the Beef of Brady's Bowl. We did make the Beef of Brady's Bowl. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, illustrious intro, Spencer, Holly, and uh, Ryan, who, uh, who described in detail a, a non-existent game. Between... Public school Syracuse and Illinois, who they didn't actually talk about, I don't think, which is Public probably for the best. Yeah, I mean, if, I don't know anyone who'd want to talk about Bill Kubit for more than a couple of minutes, except for Scott Schaefer. <laughs> Including the <laughs> Illinois AD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, if you want to know where, where the University of Syracuse is, it is the public school that played in that game. So now you know <laughs> that there is a U of S. And, and, there and they went five and seven. <laughs> and they went five and seven. Uh, <laughs> All right. Focusing on the actual Syracuse University football team, uh, lots of positive things going on. I think the week, well, the last week or so started with some negative news. Uh, Chris Beattie left the staff to um, head down to uh, Maryland, which is, you know, kind of meh, just because, A, it's Maryland, and who wants to be there? And B, um, you know, Beattie didn't really, he wasn't with the team for more than a couple weeks, Um but understandable, he's going to be close to family. He's a uh, he's a lifelong DMV resident, so it makes sense that uh, that he'd want to stay in that general area. Um, but I, I feel like while it's a bummer to lose him, it has opened the door uh, for us, you know, to to grab a couple you know quality coaches. We have one more to go, um, you know, on the full time staff. But uh, grabbing a guy like Mike Hart and uh, and Vince Reynolds, uh, both from Western Michigan, which was you know, really recruiting well above their station in life uh, these last couple of years under P.J. Fleck. Um, I, I think it's going to pay some huge dividends. Obviously, I'm banking on some of these big names that they're targeting uh, paying off. But, but Dan, what's your kind of initial reaction on, on, on both together or, or one by one, however you want to look at it? Um, losing Beatty sucks. I think he was probably the guy that we all got excited about. He had, the, you know, really good reputation. Um uh, as a recruiter, as a coach, you know, big time. And I'm just happy that we got to hold on to Ruff, um, who apparently uh, Nick Monroe is the, actually the main recruiter for because Nick Monroe is the main recruiter for everyone. Um, so that was unfortunate. Um, but, you know, being Syracuse, the, you know, we have specific challenges that not every school has to face. This is one of them. It's not the first time it's happened. If you guys think back to the uh, don't think it was the first Doug Maroney. I think it was going into year two. Um, he was bringing in Roger Harriet, who was a high school coach in Florida. And after like, literally after like a day after signing day, Harriet, his wife came up and they're like, yeah, no. And they flew back to Florida. And then we hired Ty Wheatley, who was like our best recruiter forever. Um, so I don't know that that exact thing is going to happen again. And he, you know, uh, Beattie was supposedly coaching outside receivers. Um, we bring in another Michigan running back, Mike Hart, like we did with Wheatley, who was coaching running back. So I don't think it's like a direct uh, correlation, but it does seem like, um, you know, it, it, you can make the connections there. But I, as for the two guys that we brought in since, I'm very excited. Um, 
you know, Hart obviously has the connection to Syracuse. If you bring up Mike Hart and any Syracuse fan that was around like in the early 2000s, they would just they get so upset they didn't come here. Um, and obviously, he went on to be a record breaker at Michigan. He's like a you know he's a name guys. He's a legitimate college football superstar. He was a and and he's from Syracuse. You know, I saw some people saying, you know, why didn't he, if he didn't choose Syracuse, how is he going to sell it? Like that's you know that's ridiculous. You're we're, you just can't check off every box like that. Um, the fact that the guy's from here knows the area. It's his hometown. It's a, a nice step up. And it wasn't like he, we just poached him from running clinics somewhere. Like he had coached at Eastern Michigan, and then he coached at Western Michigan, which has been one of the three or four best Mac schools for a, for a couple of years now. Um, he coached under PJ Fleck, who is a recruiting like wizard. Um, also good. crazy. Uh, He's a crazy person. Insane, insane individual. If anyone saw the the gif of him after the Bahamas ball, he he literally is is out of his mind. Probably ninety percent of his existence. Uh, yeah, he's he's like lovably, legitimately insane. Um, uh, I enjoy the story from uh, uh, back when Grantland was still a thing. Uh, Holly Anderson wrote a story about him where, she, after the story, he gave her as a gift a an oar, um, which was like autographed something like Elite Interview or something, <laughs> which is amazing. Uh, he's he's a crazy person, but he's you know he's. Uh, very likable, and he recruits incredibly well. So hopefully with our two new Western Michigan uh, assistants, Vince Reynolds and Mike Hart, that's rubbed off. Vince Reynolds was on a top ten list. I, I enjoy that we all did the uh, – not not all of us, but like a lot of the people who uh, tweeted about it when he got hired um, did the whole thing where we leave out like a keyword uh, where he was named one of the ten best – um, non-Power 5 recruiters in the country, and everyone just said one of the 10 best recruiters, so hopefully that's true. Um, either way, he was like one of the best recruiters on P.J. Flett's really, really good recruiting staff, uh, so that's a good sign. Um, and yeah, they're all Mac guys, it's fine. Uh, like we said before, there's a difference between uh, Schaefer going and just kind of getting guys he's friendly with who he hasn't coached as a you know contained unit with. Um, I mean, they've, they'd all coached together before, but they were never, none of them was the head guy. They hadn't organized their staff, but you know, within their ranks, Dino Babers, a like coach probably inherited a lot of these guys. And he, he hired them for his staff without knowing them, you know, as best buddies at Eastern Illinois or at Western at, or at uh, central Michigan or not central Michigan, Bowling Green. Sorry. Um, so like he knows these guys can work within his staff. Um, and obviously Mike Hart and Vince Reynolds are two outside guys. They're Matt guys as well, but they're guys that I think are, are very high upside and probably would have been moving on to P5, Power 5 jobs soon anyway. So um, sucks to lose Beattie. I don't think these two are like plug and play better, worse, whatever. We don't really know. Um, but at the same time, I think we got two very promising guys. And I think getting a guy like Mike Hart in the program, who is definitely a name uh, in the Syracuse community and nationally, always has uh, some benefits. Yeah, you know what? And I think it's interesting um, in general. I think they're on different ends of the spectrum. I think Reynolds was a rising name um, and one that really did help Fleck do what he's been doing. I think it's allowed Western Michigan to be in play for a lot of big names in the state. Um, and, and, you know, that's been huge. And I think it's something that could definitely pay off for, for SU. I know I, in a couple different articles, I ID'd a few Michigan kids who uh, Reynolds and Hart could potentially help us out with. Um, and yeah, I think Reynolds was going to be headed for a Power 5 job with or without Syracuse. Um, Hart, on the other hand, I think would have been eventually. I think that uh, this might accelerate that path a little bit, but that's not a bad thing either. Um, you know, Hart's a name. He, like Tyrone Wheatley, was probably bound for Michigan eventually, um, or at least a similar job. Um, and I think, you know, if, if Syracuse... like. You know what? A lot of these guys, yes, they have maybe 10 years of experience max, but they're guys who've had results, and they've had results as a cohesive unit under Babers. Um, and that's the important distinction to make versus the Schaefer hires. And it's not to shit all over the Schaefer hires either. Some of them worked out. Some of them were fine. A couple of them already have jobs elsewhere at power conference schools, so that's great. But, um, you know, what you have with Hart is, is if he's the only one you're really taking a risk on out of a full staff of nine, that I to me, that's perfectly fine. Um, it's, is that an important position? And, and it was strategic. It wasn't just that, like, oh, well, here's a guy who, who set some records at Michigan. This is a guy who set some records at Michigan and was also the greatest running back Central New York's ever seen. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
numbers wise at least some might have other things to say about that but point is that this was a well-researched and, and, and you know well-informed hire um, and, and it's one that could pay dividends I mean again looked at the article uh, yesterday where you know guys that, that at heart could absolutely you know have some kind of influence on I mean he did a really nice job with the guys that were on campus at Western Michigan already um, you know he attracted Matt Falcon a guy who yes had a knee injury but still had offers and has offers in hand from uh, most of the the country's you know top non-SEC schools um, so uh, he had an Oregon offer a bunch from most of the Big Ten um, a lot of the ACC and yeah I, I think you know Falcon he's not completely on board yet over there could be a guy that flips um, if we want to take a little bit of a gamble um, on someone with a knee issue that you know that age Emmanuel Jackson's another three-star running back um, from the area and another guy that you know, could potentially flip. And then, you know, there's, there's the big fish everyone's been talking about. And funny enough, Moran's not even as highly rated by most services um, as Falcon is. But, you know, Kendrell Moran, he's over at Illinois. Um, the previous staff was, was pursuing him, and, and this one is too. seems like Moran's really uh, intrigued by the Babers hire and the staff he's put together. So I think, yeah, you know what, if Hart can, if Hart can get more out of our running backs than we've gotten in, in the last few years— seems like we've taken a huge step back um, in that department after a really nice like five or six year run of, of quality backs um, I, I think that's a success and you know what again like you, you you can take a risk on a on a on a guy that you don't have to overpay but you know you're gonna get a ton of results out of and, and even if he leaves in three years he's gonna leave you better off for it Schaefer's entire staff was that by and large and and, and this in this case, you have one guy out of nine who's that, and I think that that's perfectly okay, and, and, and you know, I, I'm totally fine with it, and I'm sure you are too. Yeah, and I, while you were going there, I was kind of looking it up um, because to kind of illustrate the point uh, of what the Western Michigan coaches have been a part of. Um, so uh, P.J. Fleck was hired at the very end of 2012. Um, in 2013, he had limited time to put together a recruiting class, his class, uh, based on 24-7's deposit rankings, was ranked uh, 112th in the country. So, you know, recruiting rankings, we talk about them all the time. They're, you know, not the greatest thing in the world, but they are what we have. Um, so in 2014, his first full class, his uh, class ranked 72nd, so a very big jump, um, and was the best class in the MAC by, like, they basically recruited at a different level than the rest of the MAC. Like, they were recruiting at, like, uh, you know, consistent with a lot of the better mid-major group of five teams, and everyone else in the MAC was a whole like step behind. 2015 down to 76, but same range. Also, again, uh, not quite as a big a gap, but once again, the best class in the MAC. Um, and then 2016, right now their class is ranked uh, 55th in the country ahead of BYU. Ahead of, I'm directly ahead of Vanderbilt, Missouri, Boston College, Illinois, Boise State, Rutgers, uh, us, Iowa State, Georgia Tech. Etc. 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 And once again, giant gulf between them and Miami of Ohio and the MAC. So, like this team, you know, they're Western. They're Western Michigan's a MAC team for sure. Um, they weren't like the best MAC team every year, but they were, you know, in the top of the league. But recruiting wise, they were basically recruiting like they were in a better conference than they were. Um, so obviously, that conference isn't the ACC, but you know, you're approaching two really young assistants who kind of know the secrets that whatever PJ Fleck is doing over there. Um, so I, I feel pretty good about this. Right. And you know what? Again, it's, it's not to assign these guys as miracle workers. It's not to say they're better than Beattie. It's not to say that they're, they're the best recruiters we have. It's just to say that these are two guys who've been getting it done at Western Michigan, a place that shouldn't really be that easy to, to get it done at. Um, and, you know, at worst... They help Syracuse, you know, pick up some of those quality three-star guys in that in the state of Michigan that that the Broncos were getting, and potentially get you know their name in, in the ring with some of these four-star guys um, in the state of Michigan that that were started talking to them, and then maybe you know just headed elsewhere because they wanted more name cachet. Like there's a lot, there's a lot to like, and again, these guys aren't miracle workers doesn't mean that suddenly we're going to get every four and five star recruit at the state of Michigan um, or every four and five star running back. But it does mean that we stand a better chance than we did before 
um, at, at attracting quality um, running back talents in the Northeast and Midwest. And it means that we have a better shot than we did before at locking down uh, some better Michigan prospects. Those two things can't be underrated, and to me, they they, they seem like a, a nice net win. Right, and and there's no like inherent advantage that Western Michigan has over the rest of the MAC. Um, I mean, for a long time, they're just kind of an also ran, except that BJ Fleck, uh, his bloodstream is like ten percent Adderall, so he doesn't sleep. <laughs> um, but like whatever they're doing there works. Uh, to a like really big degree in recruiting um, because it's not like they have these inherent advantages. Uh, so yeah, um, I think overall, you know, losing the one guy that had all the Power Five experience sucks, but I think Babers recovered pretty well and and we still have a hire to go, so we don't know how he's going to replace it. I think this last hire is the one that will, I mean, if they go the same route with the outside receivers coach, is the one that will actually um, kind of replace BD. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. There's still the coaching convention to come up. Um, so we're actually kind of ahead of the game because a lot of the time you don't fill those last couple spots until this, and we only have one to go. So he can really focus fire on, like, exactly what he wants here. Yeah, you know, admittedly, I was kind of expecting uh, expecting us to wait um, for that. And, I mean, I'm really glad we didn't because I feel like we're, we're getting a jump on things before the quiet period. For those who don't uh, realize, the AFCA, the American Football Coaches of America, um, meets from what is it the 10th to the 13th um it's like right around the uh national championship and all that uh that that timing works out and it actually wraps up the day before the quiet period ends and we kind of you know run full bore toward national signing day in early february um everyone tries to have the staff completely locked up by the end of that uh that conference that way you know again you have a month to to pretty much go balls to the wall and make sure you have your class locked up and, and start flipping anybody. So, you know, I think a lot of us after BD left would probably have expected us to have at least two spots open um, going into the AFCA um, event. The fact that we only have one and might have none, depending on how or where Babers moves, I think is awesome. Um, and yeah, I'm for once really, really looking forward to National Signing Day because I feel like while we're not going to be sitting around with, you know, five-star kids grabbing Syracuse hats off a table or anything like that where I think in the weeks leading up to signing day we're going to have a lot of a lot of surprises um, and, and a lot of a lot of nice momentum um, for you know even if the class finishes around where it did last year if it finishes somewhere between 50 and 60 I'm totally fine with it because you know what um, and I guess this will lead, lead into the last point before we wrap up uh, this staff is, is very in, uh, content with you know, doing what it can, um, and, you know, trying for, for big names and, and, and shooting for big names, but making sure that they have a plan B and C in place if they don't work out. And I think that that's something that didn't work out, um, for Syracuse in the past. You had a lot of four, you had a four, you had either a high three or a, or a four-star kid every year, um, with Schaefer that, that didn't make it to campus. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this new staff is also targeting four stars, but, they they want to make sure that 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 plan is also backfilled, and I think you saw it a little bit already with a guy like uh, Sadiq Palmer, who was you know he was a three star, um, was a quality receiver in New Jersey, but um, as soon as they saw that he was in danger of you know some some academic qualifying issues, they kind of had to move on and, and, and focus their attention elsewhere. And, and it's not to say that that Palmer's a bad kid; he's not. Um, it's not to say that that. The kid we definitely get is, is 100% better than Palmer will be, but it's to say that, you know, this is a, a program that understands uh, the recruiting cycle and, and, and how to set yourself up for success. Yeah, I mean, we talked about depth issues with the basketball team. Um, I mean, we've seen very similar ones with the football team for a while now. When Moreau took over, obviously he went on that, like, campaign of weeding people out and, and kids, you know, if they didn't get caught, they got, like, a urge to leave. And he didn't really have feel like almost did a full roster until his final year. Um, and then obviously kids left and there was a lot of overturn uh, when Schaefer took over and we had some of the same issues. And I mean, the last two years we saw with all the injuries there were, you know, we had walk-ons playing in certain spots. We went through all these quarterbacks. So um, I, I, I always was, was generally okay with the, and Marone did the same thing in Schaefer um, strategy of kind of taking risks on high, uh, high upside kids who might have like an academic risk here and there and, and hoping it worked out. 
Uh, unfortunately, we got burned by it a number of times, and then you had a situation with like with a uh, with Blair last year where we were kind of betting on him to be the starter. And I think you can take risks on kids like that, but you also need to like have a plan and a, a good contingency. You almost have to like bet on them not being here, and then if they are, it's a bonus. And with Schaefer at times, I feel like it was the other way around, where it's like, all right, well, this kid will work out for sure. We're getting all these good reports. Um, putting your faith in the NCAA to clear someone is not good. It's not a good plan. So even if we're mad about, you know, the the system and how everyone gets screwed over, like, we're, you know, in both sports, we know the NCAA will screw people over. So let's not put it up to them. Completely agree. Um, so I guess the last question before we go. Um, Dan, I know you saw that we did, um, and everyone listening saw that we did the uh, very, very early depth chart project- projections uh, for both the offense and defense. Um, obviously, we're about 240-plus days out, or just around 240 days out, um, from kickoff against Colgate. Um, Dan, is there anything that stuck out to you is uh, just not in line with your thinking in terms of either depth chart? Do you think both kind of fall in line? Do you see, I mean, obviously this is based on very little that we have inside knowledge and more based on assumption. Um, do you think there are any names on there that, or, or, or ones that weren't on there uh, that, that speak out to you as maybe a guy who could be a, a great fit for what Babers is trying to do? Uh, I'm kind of refreshing myself here. Um, I'm interested to see, we have Ben Lewis kind of uh, penciled in as like a, slot receiver running back I'm, I'm interested to see where they put him i think he's a very useful player um in the right role uh but especially as like a blocker he's probably and, and that's important in the Bayers offense with so many screens so i do think he'll he'll be uh utilized i'm not sure exactly where um and i think the biggest mystery is offensive line like that's we have um obviously had issues there this year uh we only have a couple seniors returning um and really only like amari palmer has a ton of experience. Um, other guys were going in and out. So, um, but I don't know that I would totally like outright disagree with anything. Uh, I am interested to see how Irv Phillips is used. I know there's like a, an interesting like schism between Syracuse fans as to where they like him. I, I thought he was so good as running back and looked so natural that I want to see him getting carries out of the backfield. Other people, you know, like a still set at receiver. I just don't know if he had the natural hands for that. Um, you guys penciled him in at running back, uh, but obviously we have Fredericks as well. But Babers showed at Bowling Green this year that he can use two running backs very, you know, effectively, which is fun. Um, and I think it's good for the talent that we have on the roster. Uh, and defensively, I mean, I think look, things look pretty good. Um, it's very telling that we have all freshmen and sophomores on the defensive line, but that's just kind of that's the uh, unfortunate situation we're placed in. Um, hopefully, I would love to see the. The staff go over some ju- go after some JUCO guys there if possible. Though we haven't really heard too much about that. Yeah, I think the JUCO call is, is a good one, and I know Babers isn't really going to expand because he can't. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that defensively, you you see very much what's happened. Um, we've loaded up on on parts of. I think we've loaded up on corners and linebackers, but not necessarily safeties. Um, you see a lot of freshmen, but on the bright side there. Uh, with the line, as you see, you see a lot of sophomores, and you see a lot of you know redshirt sophomores or redshirt freshmen. So these are guys that have at least spent a year or two now um, in a college weight room and in a college strength and conditioning program. Um, and I think that that that's a positive that you know we might not have been able to point to in in other years. I think uh, one of SU's bigger issues was that you know it started throwing, it was burning shirts too quickly, and it burned some shirts that probably shouldn't have last year, but. Um, it's you definitely look at a team that seems better equipped to refresh talent and build depth now. Um, and I mean, they're still not there. They still haven't built that depth, but uh, they're again, better equipped for it. Um, the Air Phillips points. Interesting. Uh, like I said, in the article, um, I was the only one to put Phillips at starting running back. Um, I don't think that distinction is, is a sense of superiority over um, Fredericks. I think, no matter which one of them gets more carries, and by more carries, I mean one gets 17, the other gets 13. Um, they're going to be a lot of between the tackles running. Um, I think Phillips showed a, a penchant for being able to do that very well. Um, I know, obviously, his skill set might lend to more outside runs, but you're not going to see a ton of those um, in Babers' offense. It, it, it's a lot of it's a lot of between the tackles runs that pull in the defense and then allow for screens to work. Um, 
And you know what? I think the two of them uh, would be very similar to what Bowling Green had. I mean, I know in the uh, in the MAC championship game breakdown, I did a kind of comparison of this person equals this person, as in this Falcons player equals this Orange player. And I think that that probably holds for anyone looking to make further comparisons. Um, you have two different style of running backs. I think Fredericks has nice bursts of speed, but uh, I think the fat back label um, means that he can probably, you know, uh, I guess put a little more muscle behind it um, versus Phillips is just a, a really quick and not even shifty guy because that's not the right word for him. He's just a really speedy, uh, quick burst, uh, you know, running back. And you saw it uh, later in the year when we started giving him handoffs again. You know, the guy was electric out of the backfield much better than I think when they were using him in the mid-range passing game when he just couldn't pull in the ball um yeah I I I definitely would like to see him uh, getting a good deal of carries and I'm sure Babers already knows that and is going to use him there um but yeah I this is going to be interesting I think there's going to be a couple kids that surprise um you know you never know what what happens to a guy like Antarius Womack or you know any number of other kids who who were freshmen last year or sophomores last year and are kind of buried beneath some experience right now. But they're guys that Babers, because he doesn't have these sacred cows and doesn't have these guys that he feels like he needs to be beholden to, um, that could potentially work their way up in the depth chart very quickly um, through spring ball. Yeah, I, I like more than a lot of things right now in terms of my sports life, I wish I could just go and like sit down with Dino and listen to him talk about the players that he, on the team like now that I assume he's had a chance to watch some film like I'm just so interested to see what he thinks about the guys like because obviously the last two years haven't been good but I, I think we're all pretty bullish on a number of players in this team Dungy, Fredericks, Phillips uh, Steve Ishmael who we didn't bring up because questioning his position on the team is stupid um, <laughs> like there are so many really interesting talents in this team I, I wish I, I'm so interested to see and hear how Babers uh, plans to use them and what he thinks about them and, and where he thinks the improvement is. And unfortunately, when he did his like little media junket, he hadn't seen very much of the team at all, um, which is understandable. He had a bowl game, you know, he had a championship to win, and he did. Um, so I look forward to hopefully getting, you know, hopefully we hear some of that in spring. Hopefully he's a little more forthcoming than our last couple coaches, although, you know, at this point I'm all in on Babers, so he could, you know, give us absolutely nothing and I'd find a, a good, I'd, I'd find you know reason to be happy about that but um yeah i'm uh, i think we're all looking forward to spring ball based on this uh how these last two seasons have gone um i mean i'm in the point right now where it looks like my next team that you know has some hope going on is the mets and you know we were just in the world series it feels like and the mets don't start in for a couple months so it could be a long couple sports months for me here yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way, except I am a Knicks fan, so I suddenly have things to, to really believe in, which is weird. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think Syracuse football is becoming this... I was talking to my uh, my best friend from college uh, this morning, and you know we were saying it's, it's really, really weird to have more faith in the not just short-term future of, of Syracuse football over basketball, but, but long-term future, too. Um, it doesn't. That's not to knock Hopkins or SU basketball. It's just a state fact. Like right now, the excitement is kind of palpable around uh, the football team. Hopefully, that you know translates to attendance in the fall and, and maybe some additional excitement and, and, and conversation during spring ball. But I think you know that this is an exciting time for football. Um, it's weird saying that coming off of you know two straight uh, non-bowl seasons, but. Uh, there's a lot to like, and you know, again, hopefully we, we close out this recruiting period strong, and we can we can really start you know diving into the roster in earnest. I know we are in the middle of basketball season, and obviously, if things turn around, we're going to have more basketball talk. But for the time being, I mean, you and I are definitely um, heavier on the football side, and as long as there's things to talk about there, I'm, I'm happy to do it for as long as we want to. Yep, and uh, ain't nobody ever lost signing day, as they say. So it's like. <laughs> Lord help us if Babers doesn't have a good first nine games, though. Like, I'm just saying that. Like, based on Hopkins, <laughs> Hopkins, who everyone's been, like, so happy about for 20 years, like, he's been everyone's best friend on the fastball program, and he has nine games that, you know, maybe won't even define the season, <laughs> That and he loses five of them, and people freak out. So let's hope Dino's first nine games. Obviously, four and five, I think we'd, you know, maybe, maybe be okay with, because based on the sport, but, oh, God. Hopefully we can give it a little more rope. 
I was going to say, I, I think I'd be okay with four and five to start Babers' career. Yeah. But Babers starts like two and seven. Oh, my God. He didn't even have 20 years of, of uh, being a you know loyal Syracusean behind him. And on that note, uh, I think we can wrap up. Uh, Dan, thanks as always for joining. Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm glad we got off the Schneider the vacation uh, hiatus we took. Yeah, uh, when you record on Wednesday nights and holidays happen to fall on Thursdays, it gets a little tough, but we managed to pull it off. Um, thank you, everyone, for your patience. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully talking positively about a Syracuse basketball team on the upswing. No, it'll just be, oh, Bayheim is so good, we have to fire Hopkins. <laughs> and on that note, go Orange. Go Mike Piazza. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.